Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. Uh, If you want to follow along uh, in the Pew Bible, it starts on page uh, 605. Listen to the word of the Lord. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, bless us that we may fix our hearts all the more on your unique glory as the only true God. Oh, bless us, Lord. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Idol-making was essential to these people for communicating with and accessing a God. Uh, Nowadays, it's hard for us to imagine course, life without access to phone calls and texting and tweeting and emailing and Instagram and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. We can't imagine just being cut off even from TV and its many capabilities. So our computers and smartphones and, and TVs give us this access to that world out there. And really, this is what idols did for them. It gave them access Because they viewed that a god or goddess actually dwelled in the physical idol that they made. And so, to make the idol then brings the god or goddess present 
with them. They knew the difference between a god and a statue, but it didn't matter because the god came and dwelled in the statue. So if he's present, then you can get noticed by this god. They'll pay attention to you. The stone or wood then becomes your, com- your medium of communication, your way to access this God, to get your orders for stuff, for instance, to manipulate the God, to get what you want and need. And you didn't have to be tied down to a landline God. You could take God with you. You could take your gods with you. Had mobile gods for travel. Access in your tent, on your camel, at home or on the go. Uh, Not just a desktop God, but a laptop God, a smartphone God, an iPad God, you know. And then you get into a city and you not only have your hotspot with you, but there are all these hotspots around you too. Idols everywhere. Constant access to get to the gods. And so again, though they knew the difference between a God and an idol... It didn't really matter because in making this idol which the God would dwell, uh, you effectively are just making a God. You know, you're, you're making the God so that the God is there with you. And that's why he would say this very thing, that they're making gods. So this is what Isaiah is attacking. This is what Isaiah is ridiculing in this passage, this formation of idols, this making of gods. Now, you'll, you'll see in the first uh, paragraph, as it's laid out here in, in our Bibles, the first paragraph, 9 through 11, will take under the idea that those who make idols are nothing. That's basically what he says. They're nothing. Then in verses 12 through 17, that long paragraph, he depicts them as basically insane. This is just insanity that uh, they worship idols in this way. And then... In the last verses, that last smaller paragraph, 18 through 20, that they are blind. Now, really, these are part of the same thing, right? Uh, that, that they're nothing, you're insane, you're blind. It's just looking at the same thing from a different viewpoint each, each time. So, first then, these 9 through 11, uh, he says, Those who fashion idols are Nothing. Now, this is significant because the repeated theme in the pagan God stories is their role to keep order in the midst of the threat of disorder in life. Purposelessness and meaningless and chaos is constantly coming upon us, and they're the supposed guardians of the gate to keep this back. But Isaiah is turning the tables and saying, no, they're a part of the chaos. They're a part of the nothing, and if you make idols, you're becoming a part of the nothing, the chaos, the fiction, the lie of life outside of God, which is indeed death outside of God. That's the nothing apart from God. Now, some of you have maybe seen the little movie Never Ending Story. It's based on a book by Michael End. And in that world, uh, in that book, there's a world, the fantasy world's called Fantasia, right? Aptly named. And what's happening is that Fantasia is being consumed by this void of darkness, literally just being eaten up and swept away, dissolved into the nothing. Atreyu, who's the boy hero, is talking to a bark troll, okay, 
with a hole in his chest because he's already succumbing to the nothing. And this bark troll says, there's just something missing, and once it gets hold of you, something more is missing. Every day, soon, there won't be anything left of us. And that's why Isaiah sees this idolatry in entering into the nothing. And he would say that when mankind in Adam committed this first act of idolatry that Brian referred to, by taking this forbidden fruit, really as they stretched forth to try to find life outside of God, they stretched into the nothing and the darkness, and it consumed them because idols are nothing. Isaiah says that those who fashion idols are nothing. They've entered into that place where there's no meaning, no real life, no prospects, no hope. And he too would say soon, there will be nothing, anything left of them. Paul in Ephesians says that the people in the world are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, that they had no hope before they knew Christ without God. He even puts it simply, you were darkness. See, that's comparable to nothing. You're in darkness. You're in nothing. And Isaiah also goes on to say here in this paragraph that idols do not profit. They don't really get you anything. It's worthless stock. Can you imagine taking all of your savings and investing uh, into a devalued stock that you think is going through the roof, and instead the company goes utterly bankrupt? It's worthless. Idolatry is worthless. It produces nothing. And why? Because in verse 11, as he says, the craftsmen are only human. (laughs) Can a human being create something that is then suddenly worthy of worship and allegiance? Can a human being make something that then turns around and gives that human being something he didn't have before? That's nothing. (laughs) You just get the feel of that's nothing. And yet they delight in their idols, it says. They delight in those things. One scholar translates is they're, as they're his darlings. They're darlings. So they're infatuated, you see, with these idols. Like a kid in middle school who spots a girl across the lunchroom and he begins to wear his friends out with his profession of mad love for her forever, Right? And yet, those darlings, Isaiah says, will, in the end, if you could pull them together and let them see what they've done, they would be ashamed and terrified. Like our boy discovering, in fact, that she is a cruel um, and obnoxious and arrogant girl with a witchy laugh and a screeching voice. And his friends are mocking him. And shaming him because that's who you loved. That's who you took to profess your love forever. And so in that final day, if we set our hearts upon our idols, it will be a shameful thing that we stand there holding this idol, having rejected the glorious God himself for nothing. Nothing. 
so. Like Paul said in Romans 1, they knew God, but they didn't, they knew him clearly, unmistakably from creation, but they didn't live a life of gratitude to him. They didn't honor him. He says their foolish heart was darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, etc. They exchanged glory for nothing. So there's this awareness even. I reject the God that is. I take idols instead. And there's that indication here that they, in their better moments, would be terrified. They would be ashamed. There's something about them that realizes that this is not right, it's bizarre, but they continue to do it. They continue to give themselves to the promise of these idols. We are insane, as he goes on to say here. And in a struggle with a particular idol, whether it's lust or envy or jealousy, anger, anxiety, or the abuse of something that in itself is not wrong, but... It threatens to take the place of God in our lives. In in all of that struggle, we have nonetheless been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son. We still struggle to live our new life, to walk away from the nothing, right? To uproot the remaining idols in our lives. And so, though this is... This is so serious about idolatry, and ultimately giving yourself to idols is absolutely destructive of your life. And it would be said of us, if that happens soon, there will be nothing left of us as human beings. We'd be utterly, finally, under God's judgment. Yet, having been delivered from that darkness, we are engaged in a war with idolatry. That's what the Christian life is about, actually, is ridding ourselves of our idolatry. Though we're in a new kingdom and we have a new relationship of favor with God through the death of Christ, and through His Spirit, Christ has begun to renew us, we come into His kingdom with idols in our luggage, idols stored in the baggage cards, lodged deeply in nooks and crannies in our lives, in hidden closets and attics and secret compartments, idols that continue to wield their influence, and God is set about to set us free from those. And so he begins to reveal the glory of Christ, and we put our, our trust in Christ, and as he continues to unveil that glory to us, we more and more we give ourselves to Christ and more and more see his, that he is the treasure and we have our idols uh, discovered and we begin to destroy those. And so this is a constant work in our lives and we're thankful that God has brought us, of course, out of this darkness, out of the nothing so that we can live lives uh, to him alone. And I must say, though, if you do not rest in Christ for your salvation, if you have not taken him to be your treasure, even though he's not perfectly your treasure, but this fundamental in in trusting yourself to Christ and beginning to treasure God, then one day there'll be nothing left of you. 
okay? Nothing left of you because your only significance, my only significance, is that I be restored to this God who made me and not try to live life apart from this God and destroy myself in the end. And so he uses this term of nothing, and then he satirizes the making of idols, doesn't it? It's a merciless satire as well, showing how careful they are in their work, showing that they grow the trees and they carefully shape the wood and and then they uh, work in the metal and how hot and hard it is to do that. It's a labor-intensive production. All of their creativity and skill and toil are poured into the making of the idol. They get tired and hungry making it. And that's the remarkable thing that these weak men that get so tired in making a God then turn around and depend on that God for strength. It's insane. This is just insane. And again, though, for them, it's essential. I've got to have access. I've got to maintain good connections and open portals to the gods. But then Isaiah says... What you have in the end is just the leftover wood from what you burned. And now you're going to bow down and and worship it suddenly. You're going to take this thing that you're burning and take a piece of it and worship it. That, Isaiah says, is insanity. And we're, we're, we're brought to it to just be astounded that... This would happen, that people would lose their minds like this over their idols. And yet, you know that we do the same thing. Our idols are very different. One set of idols is modern technology, right? It's magnificent. It's intriguing and fascinating. It's, it's engaging, entertaining. It seems all-powerful. It seems monumental. I mean, it stretches out over the whole world, and you see uh, in fabulous structures everywhere. You see things that fly to Mars. You see nuclear energy and medical miracles. Even in entertainment, we're just able to be swept into a whole different world. And it's so easy to forget that every single bit of this stuff that is made is just made by human beings. That's all it is. Yes, it shows forth the glory of God from our perspective that God could make human beings to make such things. But in and of themselves, these are just made of, by human beings. It's only human. None of it can do anything for us ultimately. None of it can ultimately profit us. It's not wrong in itself, of course. None of these things is, as, as Brian said earlier. But if my way of engaging in these things or in anything else, from family to work to play to whatever it might be, if I push God aside to do these things, if I immerse in it instead of fellowshipping with God, if I don't engage with God as I'm doing it, but I do it away from God as part of my rejection of God, then it's clearly my idol. 
it's one thing to devote myself to prayer and the Word and, and to search out God and seek Him and in that context enjoy His creation and fellowship with Him. It's one thing that another thing that fellowship with God and communion with Him doesn't exist, but all these other things do. That becomes idolatry. And these idols cannot save us, will not save us. All of modern technology will not give us life and significance. And in the final day of judgment, they in and of themselves will be of no profit to us or anyone else. They will not keep you from death. They will not bring you into fellowship with God. They will not take away your sin. They will not resurrect your body. They will not bring you into the new heavens and the new earth. They're only human things. But we treat them as gods for the time we devote to them in some cases. Apart from God, if we depend on these and seek them instead of God, they are nothing and we who pursue them are nothing. I'm not saying that as a statement, hey, you're nothing. I'm saying you're participating in the nothing of life apart from God. This, Isaiah says, is insane. Nothing insane, blind. In these last uh, verses, they cannot see, their hearts cannot understand. And, and again, Isaiah says, you'd think they would stop and say, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. Okay, now one part I burned in the fire, the other part I worked. Maybe that's a little crazy, you know? No. No, blinded. We don't understand. That's all of us by nature. We don't see our idolatry. We don't see how we are giving ourselves away to these things. Or if we do, we don't care about it. And we don't see anything different that we could do or should do. Because we don't love God. And so, we ourselves, though, he, he talks about this in a way that it seems that they should know it and sometimes do think on it, but their deluded heart, he says in verse 20, leads them astray and they can't deliver themselves. It's as though they see themselves in it and sometimes they see the wickedness of it, and the empty, but they just can't leave it. And we know what that is, even as believers. We certainly know what it is in the whole of our lives. Telling ourselves not to do this or that thing. It's almost as though we're separate from ourselves and we're watching ourselves act or think. And we know it doesn't make sense. We know it's dark and destructive. We know it's disobedient. We know it has no purpose. But I do it. I cut myself off from reason and light and consequence. In that moment, I'm just spiritually insane. Right? Right? I see it and know it, and then I do it. And, and that's what Isaiah says. That's their whole life. We, by God's grace, are being delivered from that. We still experience it at times. But he says this is their whole life of giving themselves away to that which is ultimately destroying them. And that's because idolatry anesthetizes. It sedates. It brings its own numbing medicine 
its own deadening of our spiritual nerve endings. Sin has as its go, idolatry has it as its go, for you to become the walking dead, for you to become spiritual lepers so that you don't even see what you're doing. That's what sin wants to do. Sin wants you to be living life, working, keeping your yard, watching TV, going on vacation, having family get-togethers, all apart from God, just apart from God, so that he's not at the center and the reason, the purpose and the glory of what you do. And, of course, this is where God found every one of us, every one of us in darkness, participating in the darkness, Paul says. We were darkness, creating the darkness, immersed in the nothing. But God came to fix our hearts on the reality of the true God, the one God who created all things, not the many thousands of gods who are just fixed in the things themselves, but a God who is above it all, who makes it all, who preserves it all, who rules it all. This true God who has lived in eternal fellowship, this God who has relationship within himself of eternal love. And this God has shown his love in that he would spend himself lavishly for, for us who lived in that darkness, who were feasting on our idols. How could he do that? This God who would restore us ultimately to kingship and share with us his reign in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the true God. That's the good news of the Bible. The true God rules and the true God uses his almighty power to love. That is good news. That's the true God. And outside of knowing this God of eternal love, who's manifested that love in the person of Jesus Christ, any other so-called God, any other philosophy, any dependence on anything else for life is nothing. Because you're made for this God. You're not made for the nothing. You're not made for what man can make. You're made for the God who makes all things. That's what you're made for. That's what you must feast yourself upon. Even in this context, in verse 8, the words right before our text, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And that was really funny to me. For God, who rules all things to say, Is there another God? I don't know of one. You know? (laughs) What an understatement. I know not of another God. Show him to me. Who is he? What is he? No, they're just idols who can do nothing, who do not deliver, who do not predict the future. There is one God. And isn't it glorious that this one true God is the one who came in the flesh to give himself for sinners? Dear brothers and sisters, that is God. And there is no other God. You can make up a God if you want. But this is God, the God who sacrifices himself for sinners. He is to be worshipped and enjoyed forever. All else is nothing. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we praise your great name. 
that you are such a God as you are. Forgive us, Lord, that we run so quickly and easily to those that are not God's. We run so quickly to the creation of man, pushing you out, shoving you to the side so that we can get life from this thing, not believing in your goodness, not believing that you are worthy and trustworthy and that you will satisfy all who come to you. Oh, Lord, forgive us that we have blasphemed in so many ways by denying your goodness, by seeking to shut you out of our lives while trying to feast on your creation. Lord, bless us with eyes to see your beauty and glory and eyes to see the tragedy of our idols that we might continue to uproot them from our lives and become more and more free in Christ Jesus. Amen.